Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Good morning, church family. It's great to see you today, and uh, I just love you guys. I'm glad that we're able to gather together and to worship. And can you believe it's December? <laughs> we just just eaten turkey the other day, right? Like, isn't that, how in the world is it December? But it's officially allowable to celebrate Christmas now. And so we're all thankful for that. We're going to start our Christmas series today. But I want to let us get to know each other a little bit better. How many of you start celebrating Christmas before Thanksgiving? Some of you are shaking your head no, like you're mad at these people. A couple of people are a little shy and putting their hand up. People are proud. I like that, Jordy. Excited about that. My wife and I have debated for a long time in our house. Can you start decorating before Christmas? I think we should. She's always resisted until this year. I've worn her down. It's only taken me 19 years. We've worn her down in that process. I, my argument to her is I'm really thankful for Christmas. I think that's a rock-solid argument for why you should be able to celebrate early. And obviously all the marketers, Hobby Lobby, Walmart, all those people think that that's true because it gets you to start spending money earlier. I actually snapped a picture when I was in Walmart this year in September. It was 90 degrees outside, and this was what was in Walmart when I walked in. So those of you who are upset about decorating early, it's their fault. Blame them. And uh, those of you who know me, you know I like to hang out at Walmart. I actually bumped into some people on Black Friday who came to Walmart. I was there. I don't work there. I had a name tag on, but I don't work there. And, um, and they said, we thought we'd see you here. Like, like I was part of the attraction. Some people go see different things for pictures, hang out with me on Black Friday next year at Walmart. We'll have a whole church party there uh, together. It'll be great. But you're officially allowed to celebrate now, which is great news for some. Because some of you, when you think of Christmas, there's great anticipation. There's the excitement of what could happen. There's surprises, giving kids gifts. There's trees, the, the lights outside at night. For some people, Christmas is just another part of the rhythm of life. It's just a routine, like Thanksgiving happened. Now we kinda, you're kind of moving through life, just doing the routine. For some people, for various reasons, Christmas is a really sad time of year. Maybe because of loss, maybe because of like Pastor Seth was just praying about bad memories, different things. But for all of us, the potential is that, that not just Christmas, but Jesus Christ loses his wonder at Christmas time. And as we're thinking about this series and planning it, my hope, my aim for you in this series is that God will restore the wonder of the wondrous one. Not of Christmas and mistletoe and eggnog and trees and all that stuff, but of Jesus Christ himself this Christmas. And so that's my hope for you. And as I was thinking about this series, the phrase that kept coming to my mind was, like a kid on Christmas morning. Have you ever used that phrase? Maybe for something that wasn't even about Christmas. You get a new job and you're excited about the job. I was like a kid on Christmas morning because of all the potential of what could be. Or you got some new thing like gadget, some of your electronics guys, or maybe you got a sporting goods thing, or maybe you got some new cookware stuff, or whatever your things are. And you're like, I was like a kid on Christmas. You were so excited to use that stuff. The hours of joy that would come from those things. And maybe think about when I was a kid, you know, you get the, the box, the box that you don't know what's inside. You didn't see the parents wrap it. It's got the nice paper on it. It's there. And I don't know what you do at your house. Some people just tear into presents. Some people pass them out and take numbers, and you open one and you open one. But just imagine like when you were a kid sitting there with the present, what does this box represent? It's all the possibilities of what could be. It's not moving. It's not a puppy. But how many of you, when you were a kid, wanted a present so bad that you gave hints about that present for months? Maybe a Red Ryder BB gun. Maybe an Xbox. Maybe you're really old, it was an Atari. <laughs> Only a percentage of you even know what that is. 
What, 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 what were some of the things? What did you, go ahead and respond. You can talk to me today. Go ahead. What were some of the things you hoped would be in this box when you were a kid? A waterbed. Water <laughs> the box only that big, Velo, sorry. <laughs> what else, what else? Bicycle. Somebody said a new set of golf clubs in the first service. Come on, what, else? what do you got? Come on, charrettes. I see you sitting right there. I'm not going to leave you out. Barbie dream house. What was it, Jordy? A car. Hey, December to remember. It's got the red bow. See that? Could be some keys in there. Come on, some of y'all haven't been on a vacation in a long time. Could be some tickets to a cruise in there. Maybe a G.I. Joe shotgun. All right. Watch out for the guy in the back row. <laughs> Think you never, it could be anything in this box. Like the possibilities are almost endless. And so you sit there like a kid on Christmas morning with these eyes of wonder. But here's the reality. Some of you have become jaded. And some of you parents, you know what it's like. You buy your kid one of the G.I. Joe or the, the Barbie dollhouse or some kind of Christmas present. How many of you bought the plastic kitchen for your kids before? You ever bought the plastic kitchen we bought that for our girls. And now if somebody opened up a plastic kitchen on Christmas morning, do you know what I would see? I wouldn't see the thing I put together the night before. I would see it five years from now with stickers on it and crayon marks on the side. And the clock doesn't work anymore. And there's some pieces missing. And I'm loading it in my car to take it to the thrift store. That's jaded, okay? And here's my hope for you. is not that we would restore your wonder for what present you might get this Christmas. But for the wondrous one, Jesus Christ, because here's the thing. Whatever you pull out of that box, it could be a new car or a shotgun or cruise tickets or a Bobby Dream House. All of those things, their glory fades. But Jesus Christ, not only born 2,000 years ago, not only was promised 4,000 years before that, but has existed for all of eternity and his glory never fades. But sometimes our wonder does. And so the question I want you to ask yourself as we walk through this series, not just today, but through the whole series, what would it take in my life? And so the answer is going to be different for each one of us. What would it take in my life to restore the wonder of Jesus Christ this Christmas? And if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at just one simple verse today. It's in 2 Corinthians. That comes right after 1 Corinthians in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, just one verse, and it's about the promises of God. And here's the thing about the promises of God. They're a lot like, like when you look at this box, it's a lot like the wrapping paper on this box. The paper's beautiful. It's got a great bow on there. I didn't do that, by the way. We've got some wonderful folks in our church that put that together. But the wrapping paper's not the present. But when you unwrap it, it reveals the present. God's promises are incredible. But God's promises aren't the gift. They reveal the gift when you grasp or unwrap the promises of God, it's actually the one behind the promises that's incredible, that should be, should be awe-inspiring, should leave you wonderstruck, because he's the wondrous one. And look at what it says about him in 2 Chronicles chapter 1 and verse 20. What's happening here is the Apostle Paul, who's written the letter, we, we studied it together at the beginning of this year, to the Corinthians, they had a whole bunch of problems. In 2 Corinthians, they're doing really well. They've responded to a bunch of the stuff he wrote. And he wants to come visit them again, but he's not able to, and so he's got a change of plans, and he's basing it in the character of God. And he drops this truth in this verse that, to me, restores the wonder of Christmas, of Jesus Christ. Look at what it says, verse 20, chapter 1, 2 Corinthians. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That's referring to Jesus Christ. For all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That is why it is through him, Jesus, that we utter our amen to God for his glory. 
That's pretty incredible. Because you see the second word there? It's not for some of his promises. Not for a lot of his promises. For all the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ. Do you know how many promises there are in the Bible? Got any guesses? Anybody know? Come on, you can interact with me. You're like, I don't know. I'll be wrong, so I don't want to say anything. Just guess. Go ahead. 3,000. 1,000. 10,000. 5,000. What'd you say? 5,000. We got 3,000, 5,000. Can I get a 6,000? Let me get a 7,000. 3,500. That's good. That's good. Now, listen, here's the deal. You can go and research this, and you'll find all kinds of answers. It depends on how you count the promises. Some people don't count any of the negative promises. It depends on how you count the promises. Some people don't count any of the conditional promises. So how do you count? And I saw one person said that some people say there's 30,000 promises in the, in, the, in the Bible. But I don't think that's possible. There's only 31,112 verses in the, in the whole Bible. So if there were 30,000, that'd be like every verse almost has a, has a promise. I don't think that's true. And so what, let's just go with a conservative estimate. Some of you said like 3,000, 3,500. I saw one person say 3,573. Here's the deal. Preparing for this message, I didn't read the whole Bible and count them all. I was eating turkey, just like the rest of y'all, okay? But 3,573, and they all find their yes in Jesus Christ? That's interesting. All of the promises of God are yes in Jesus? Well, then that means that I'm going to preach to you today a message with 3,573 points. That's what's known as nervous laughter. <laughs> Here's the reality. I want you to see the glory of Jesus through the promises of Jesus that he fulfills. They're all yes in him means he fulfills them. It's God's yes to you about those promises comes through Jesus Christ. And so what I want to share with you today is this, five wonder-filled truths about the promises of God. Five wonder-filled truths about the promises of God. The first one is this, that God's promises are worth waiting for. His promises are worth waiting for. Now that doesn't resonate with most of our souls because most of us hate to wait. That's why some of y'all were cutting each other off on your way to church today. Confession's okay. Go for it. I've done it before. I've actually done it on the way to church and then saw the person pull in the parking lot and thought, oh no, they're going to see me preach. <laughs> so some of y'all done it and you get in the lobby and you're like, oh, I don't want to sit by that person. So you try to go through the other door and when you try to go through the other door, somebody's standing there with their coffee talking and you're thinking, would you just go sit down? But you don't say it because it's church. We hate to wait. We want what we want when we want it. And, you know, as kids, it's like they don't know timing. They don't know when to wait. But as adults are supposed to learn, there are certain things that are worth waiting for. Whether it's your Christmas bonus, Clark. Or it's a good meal. But, you know, if you take it out of the oven too soon, you're going to ruin it. Or even if you post a video online, and you know that the punchline doesn't come for a minute, and most people's attention spans are really short, so you post, wait for it. Trust me, it's worth waiting for wedding nights. According to God, it's supposed to wait for that time because it's worth waiting for. And so we look at the Christmas story, and it's possible. Listen, I've preached Christmas passages for 13 years at this church. I know that Mary isn't expecting an angel to show up. It causes tension in their marriage. These wise men, they don't even know what's going on, but they're the wise men. They show up. It's chaos. It's chaotic. But what's really happening here? Do you think maybe it's possible, you've heard it for 13 years, or 30 years, some of you? Some of you, it's newer, but we miss what's actually happening in the story. And you go to the very first verse of the Christmas story. Now, I bet this isn't the verse that some of you will read on Christmas morning to your family. Not Luke 2, Matthew 1. 
Matthew 1, verse 1, the very first verse in the New Testament is the beginning of the Christmas story, and it goes like this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. (laughs) Now let me ask you a question. How many of you, when you're reading your Bible on your own, see genealogy and you start skimming? Like, I'm not reading that. That's boring. Hard name, hard name, hard name, hard name, whatever. I don't know what's happening. Skim. This is a story of promise. And these have been people that have been waiting for this promise for 4,000 years. If you read the Bible, here's the problem for some of us. Some of you read the Bible like it's about you. And that sometimes the pastors teach us that implicitly, or sometimes it's just reading in your devotional reading. Let me tell you something. You're not David. You go to fight the giant. That's not about you. Those aren't the giants in your life. You're not Joshua crossing, crossing the Jordan. You're not Moses leading the people of Israel. All, these sto- that, all those stories are about Jesus. The Bible's not about you, but it is a, a book to you. Okay, you, you read it like God's writing to you, but it isn't about you. It's about Jesus. And so you read the story like that, what you realize is this has been a big story that's been happening for a long time. It goes all the way back to the first promise in the Bible. If you know what the first promise in the Bible is, most of us don't want to claim this one. If you eat of the tree, you will surely die. That's a negative promise. But parents, you know that negative promises are good too and for your good. If you don't get over here, I'm going to. All right. Not usually because you're feeling loving in that moment, because you love them though, Right? And so you give negative promises, and God always keeps his promises. He can't lie. And so what happens in the story in Genesis is that they eat of the tree. They fall for something we all fall for, false promises, Satan's promises, promises of this world, and they eat of the tree. And then you know what's going to happen in the story, and God keeps his promises. That's why the genealogies all go like this, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, hard name, hard name, and they lived for a long time, and they died. Hard name, hard name, they lived for a long time, they died. Hard name, hard name, they died. Because God keeps his promises. And that's one of the things the genealogies teach us. But amidst them, there's one rule, they break it, believe in the false promises, and death's going to come, God gives hope. Because there's another promise right there. In Genesis chapter 3, it's what Bible scholars call the curse chapter. It's the fall. And the woman gets her curse, and there's going to be pain in childbirth. And you're going to desire to rule over your husband. And husbands, there's going to be frustration in your work. And there's, you're going to see this perpetual passivity in men. And we talk about that a lot of times because we talk about marriage a lot. We don't talk about snakes very much in the Bible. But the serpent was, was, through, was Satan working through the serpent. And the serpent gets cursed. And while the serpent's being addressed, in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, we get one of the first promises in the Bible. Listen to this. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Satan and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, or someone says your seed, your seed and her seed, he, being her offspring, shall bruise your head. That's a death blow. You shall bruise his heel. Oh, what is this all about? It's kind of confusing right here. Now, as people who've read the New Testament, we know this is actually about Jesus. This is called the proto-evangelium by Bible people. That just means this. It's the prototype of the gospel. It's the first glimpse we get of the gospel of Jesus Christ is in Genesis chapter 3, amidst death, we see hope. And so what happens if you're not reading the Bible like it's all about you, that it's actually to you, is that this, this doesn't answer questions like, this is Je- who, when does Jesus come? doesn't answer any of those questions. Like we know that, the, that right here when it says that you're going you're gonna to bruise his heel, that's the suffering that Jesus experiences as he goes to the cross. Satan can make Jesus suffer. But... To bruise your head, 
That's Jesus going to deal a death blow to the serpent. When he dies on the cross, and then three days later, he's raised from the dead. That's why we say on Easter Sunday, oh, death, where's your victory? Sin, where's your sting? It's, there's not, it's not there because Jesus defeated death, defeated sin, defeated Satan. He gave the knockout punch on Easter Sunday. But they don't know this. If you're reading the Bible 4,000 years before the birth of Jesus, you're just going, who's the seed? Who's the offspring? And what happens then as you're reading the Bible is every time you see a significant birth in the Bible, genealogy, story, you're going, is that the seed? Is he the one? Think about how this works. So Eve is told that through your seed, through your offspring, the whole world is going to be blessed. The Savior is going to come. The hope amidst death that defeats death is going to come. Is it Cain and Abel? Well, that doesn't go well. You know that story. Sin's crouching at your door. One, you wonder what happened with your kids if you just left them alone. One kills the other one. And then maybe the replacement, Seth. Nope, not Seth. Well, maybe they're not. Nope, nope. You start reading about these people that are born, each seed, not them, not them. Then there's this special guy named Abram. He's a moon worshiper. That's not what makes him special. God calls him. He says, you come follow me. Based on my promises, you come follow me, and he does it. And one of the promises, if you know, the Abrahamic promise, there's a three parts to it. It's land, seed, offspring, and blessing. He says, I'm going to bless you, Abraham, and anybody who blesses you, I'm going to bless them. Anybody who curses you, I'm going to curse them. It's talking about the nation of Israel being born through Abraham as the father of our faith. And part of it's a seed. So who's his son? Isaac? Maybe it's Isaac. And then you read this story in Genesis chapter 22 where God seems to contradict himself. He says he's testing the faith of Abraham. He says, Abraham, sacrifice your son, your only son. I'm going to give you a nation of people through your line, but then... I want you to kill your son. But God, you say not to kill people, and now you're saying I'm supposed to sacrifice my son. What's going to happen? But he goes in obedience, trusting God, trusting God can do beyond what he could ever ask or imagine. Then it says in Hebrews that he believed that God could raise his son from the dead. No one had been raised from the dead. And they go up on this mountain. His son's about 16 years old. He says, Dad, where's the lamb? Every time we go to make a sacrifice, there's a lamb. There's no lamb this time. They get up on top of the mountain. His son lets him tie him to an altar. And Abraham's got his hand up in the air, and he's about to thrust it through the chest of his son. And then we know it's Jesus. But the Old Testament says, angel of the Lord. Angel of the Lord says, Abram, Abram. Now I know. He always knew. But now experientially he knows. Now I know that you fear God. And then Abraham looks up. And it's interesting to note in Genesis 22, it's not a lamb. It's a ram. Now we got multiple questions. Who's the seed? Where's the lamb? Maybe it's Joseph, because you could interpret Joseph's life that they were suffering, and man intended harm, but God intended good, and maybe that's the death blow, but nope, he dies, nothing happens there. Maybe it's Moses. Maybe Moses is the seed. Who's the seed? Genesis 3.15. Now we're, like, we're into this thing, hundreds of years into this thing. Maybe it's Moses, and you see the Egyptians are trying to kill all these babies. Read Exodus chapter 1, 2, and 3. But Moses, it's like a miraculous birth. He survives and then gets to live in the king's palace. Maybe he's the seed. Nope, he doesn't even get to go to the promised land. Maybe it's Joshua. Nope, not Joshua. And then you keep reading, and what you see is this cosmic battle between God and Satan, and Satan's trying to destroy the Jewish people, trying to cut off the line of Jesus. And so you read Esther. Esther's not for such a time as this in your workplace. Satan's trying to destroy Jesus Christ, the line of Jesus, and God's placed Esther in the king's palace to preserve his promise from Genesis 3.15 to redeem all of mankind. It's going to come through 
the line of, obviously, Adam and Abraham. And then there's these kings. Maybe it's David. He's a man after God's own heart. Nope, you can't even build the palace. But then in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David's given a promise. The Messiah is going to come through your line, and he's going to reign forever. Okay, so maybe it's Solomon. Nope, have you read that story? Not Solomon. And then Isaiah talks about him. So he's going to be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7, 14. He's going to have a wonderful name, the Prince of Peace, wonderful counselor, mighty God, God in the flesh, born of a virgin, yeah, a suffering servant, Isaiah 52 and 53, who's going to take upon the iniquities of us all on himself. Micah tells us he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And then we come to Matthew chapter 1. It's been 400 years of silence, 4,000 years of waiting. Oh, and by the way, did you know that Advent is all about waiting? That's what we celebrate this time of year, is the Advent. As Christians, it's an expectant waiting. And as believers now, we look to this celebration of Matthew 1.1 and then to his second coming because there's promises that are still to come. Matthew 1.1 says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Is he the one? The son of David. Maybe it's him. The son of Abraham. It's him. No wonder Mary sings a song after finding out that she's having a child who she's then told is going to be on the throne of David forever. 2 Samuel 7, through the line of Abraham. Oh, wait, this is, he's the promised one? That's why she sings a song. That's why when they present him as a baby in the temple, there's people that go, now I can die. Because we've been waiting for him. All the promises are yes through him. No wonder when you start to know the Old Testament, the New Testament makes more sense. Satan doesn't have any new tricks. You start to read this book. You start to see what he's doing. No wonder he killed all the babies in Bethlehem. He'd been trying that since Moses. No wonder he tries to tempt Jesus in the wilderness. He'd been trying that since Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve. But see, Jesus is the second Adam, Romans chapter 5. And he only does what the Father tells him to do. And so he comes and he obeys completely, but then dies in our place. All of the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ. And he's worth waiting for. And we live now in a time that theologians call the already and not yet. He's already come. He's already died. You can already experience salvation. You can already have the abundant life. You can already be forgiven. But you're not yet redeemed. Your body's not yet glorified. Everybody over 40 said amen. You've not yet realized what it is to be free from temptation. You've not yet had every tear wiped from every eye. There are promises to look forward to, but they're all yes in Jesus Christ. That's just the first wondrous truth. The second one is this, that God's promises are scandalous. God's promises are scandalous. Think about it. Just in that Genesis chapter 3, they believe false promises. They think this world's going to satisfy. Surely you will not die. God, you're not going to die. God doesn't keep his promises. Ever heard that one? Framed in context of different ways. It's okay. It's just once. You're just going to look. It's not a big deal. This won't hurt you. <laughs> We've all believed false promises. We've all believed those lies. And what was, what was the parameter? If you do this one bad thing, you will die. Okay. And God always keeps his promises, but amidst death, he gives hope. That's a scandal. See, we understand scandals as a culture. Whether it's Tiger Woods crashing his car because he's cheating on his wife, Jeffrey Epstein and who killed him and your mark safe, some financial scandal, a CEO stealing money, and then people who don't even get benefits, but they're making tons of millions of dollars. And we know scandals when we see them. How do you define a scandal? 
Do you know what a scandal is? A scandal is when something happens that's so far outside of our moral parameters that it's shocking. So try and, try and imagine this with me. Imagine you're in a courtroom and God is the judge. And you're on trial. And the question is, have you ever lied? Is there anyone here who's never lied? Could you raise your hand? Let's get that out of the way. Go ahead and lie. All right, got you. He's a liar. <clears throat> okay, so then you all confess that you're guilty. And you might have an argument like, well, but I've never killed anyone. Or I've never, and you fill in the blank with whatever you think is bad. Do you know what the Bible says? And God's the one who makes the rules, by the way, and he's the judge. So it says if you break the law in one way, you're guilty of the whole thing. So if you've lied, you are actually guilty of murder. You've hated, coveted, lusted, like, oh, you can pick a different sin. But, so we're all, we've all acknowledged that we're guilty. God's the judge. What's the most scandalous thing that could happen? And it's not just that he looks the other way and lets you go. Like, scandals happen in courtrooms all the time. We see all kinds of things. People don't think that the judge declared right or there's something shady that happened. If the glove doesn't fit, you've got to quit. Like, whatever. All kinds of stuff happening, right? There was recently a trial. Some of you may have seen it. Was, it was scandalous. Amber Geiger is a police officer in Dallas, Texas, white woman, shot a black young man, Botham Jean, in his own apartment while he was sitting there eating ice cream. <laughs> Can't get much more of an innocent picture than a guy sitting on his couch eating ice cream. And in case you're totally socially unaware, there's some tension between being a black young man in our culture and dealing with the police. And so that was a pretty, um, pretty tense trial that was taking place there. Now, some of you may have seen what happened during the sentencing. She was found guilty. Of course, she, she did it. She just said it was a mistake. She didn't realize what apartment she was going into. And then there was people that were upset about how long the sentence was. It wasn't long enough. But during the sentencing, family got to give statements. And his brother, Brant, gave this statement. I'll read it to you. Speaking to this woman who killed his brother while he sat there in his apartment eating ice cream. And he said, I forgive you. I know if you go to God, he will forgive you. I love you. I said some other things. and It's pretty emotional if anybody saw the video. He said, I'm not going to say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did. I personally want the best for you. And then you can see him, he like grabs his collar and he's like debating whether to say this. He said, I wasn't going to say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you. That's what Botham would want. And the best would be to give your life to Christ. And then if you watch the video of him saying this, you know that he, he squirmed around, he was uncomfortable and he had emotional fury and he said to the judge, could I, could I give her a hug? And he went and gave this woman who killed his brother a hug. And some of you may have seen this picture. And that was scandalous. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're like, oh, what a picture of forgiveness. There's a picture of the gospel. But what about all the people that thought he, she didn't get enough sentence anyways? You know what they were saying? Because you can read articles on both sides. The other, other side thinks this is outlandish. How could you be so quick to forgive him? And then justice wasn't served anyways. You could forgive her. Justice wasn't served anyways. But that's just a hug. Can you imagine if sitting in that, that courtroom that day, if Brant had said, you know, you killed my brother, my brother was just sitting there innocently, didn't do anything wrong, you killed him, you've admitted it, you've acknowledged your guilt, and your sentence shouldn't be 10 years in jail, you should get the electric chair. And he looked at the judge and said, I'll take the electric chair for her. 
That would be scandalous if the judge said, okay, and the judge was the father of both boys. And that's the gospel. Because Jesus didn't do anything wrong. And your lying is what nailed him to the cross. You are guilty of murder. And he decided to go to the cross willingly on your behalf because you had a penalty you had to pay that you couldn't pay. And you have to decide whether you're going to accept him paying the penalty or you're going to pay it. But if you accept him paying it, it's because you believe a promise. Here's the promise. It's in Romans chapter 9. It says this. In Romans chapter 10, I'm sorry, verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. God's promises are scandalous. Because do you know how you're made right with God? Most world religions will tell you that the way that you're right with God is by being good enough. That hopefully your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. That how good do you have to be? Well, it depends on how bad you've been. No, the Bible never says that. In fact, do you know how Abraham is made right with God? It's by believing a promise. Abraham's a moon worshiper. He's in trouble. And then after he believes God, he becomes an adulterer. Okay, things aren't looking better for you, buddy. But let me read you what it says in Genesis chapter 15. He's given his promise in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. But in Genesis 15, it says this. And so people were made believers in the Old Testament the same way that they were in the New Testament. It's by belief in the seed. Look at what he says. And he believed, talking about Abraham, believed the Lord, and he, God, counted it to him as righteousness. It's through belief in the promises of God that you're made right with God. That's a scandal. It's not by being right. It's not by doing right. It's by believing on the one who did right for you, Jesus Christ. Let me read you that promise again. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you, promise, will be saved. That's a scandal. They're worth waiting for. They're scandalous. But if you're already a follower of Jesus, don't miss this next one. This next one's crucial. The promises of God are fuel for your faith. The promises of God are fuel for your faith. Let me read you Romans chapter 10. We're already there in verse 9. I'll read verse 17. It says this, So faith comes, it's originated by, it's catalyzed from, comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So the way that our faith starts, we all have different stories. Some of you trusted Christ when you were a little kid. Some of you trusted Christ when you were 30 years old. Some of you trusted Christ last week. And some of you, you haven't trusted Christ yet. But if you've trusted Jesus... What happened was there came a point you thought you were awesome. No matter if you're five, you thought you were, you were awesome. And then there was some kind of crisis. Maybe as a little kid, the crisis was, I don't want to go to hell. And the only way to get to heaven is through Jesus. Maybe as an adult, your marriage has fallen apart. Or you realized your addiction got out of hand. Or you realized you obtained everything you wanted in life and it didn't satisfy you. But then you realized you needed help. And you believed this promise. And then what happened? Because some of you, when you trusted Christ, were ready to change the world for Jesus. What happened? Have you ever made s'mores before? Make a little campfire, maybe hot dogs, something like that. How many of you have done that before? So I know. I'm like, okay, good. Most of you have done. Most of this side of the room, there's a little section here. Anyway, have s'mores. we'll have s'mores at Walmart next year at Black Friday. They'll never even know. Trust me. <clears throat> But if you make a fire, you know that you, you put the logs in or the paper or whatever it is you're going to burn. You've got to have some substance in there that you're going to burn. If you just let it go, it burns out. You've got to keep adding logs. 
keep the fire going. You've got to keep giving it fuel. Car, you can use lots of different analogies. Energy, your body, like if you're exercising, you've got to keep adding fuel or you burn out. Now, why is it that so many Christians think, I'm going to trust the promise of God, I'm going to trust Romans 10.9, I'm a believer, I'm going to follow Jesus, and then you don't fuel your faith. Instead, we say things like, I'm going to speak it into existence. That's a new age. That's not the Bible, by the way. You think you're just going to wake up one morning and be inspired and have the courage to step out by faith. Where's that coming from? That's not what happened with Abraham. He believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness and he lived by faith based on the promises of God. The promises originated from the Word of God. It's by hearing the Word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. They start and they're sustained by the Word of God. So it's the Word of God that catalyzes our faith. It's the Word of God that sustains our faith. And so many of us, we're living our Christian lives, like you got the, you know, the fire, and you're doing the s'mores, and we're, we're like, I'm hoping, I'm believing this year's going to be my year. What does that even mean? What's that based on? What, 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 what do you got in the Bible you're going to say that? I just believe in it. <laughs> okay, people believe a lot of wild stuff. See, here's the thing about Christianity. It's actually a faith with substance. You don't just make it up. You don't just hope it into existence. You don't just wish that it were true, and if God doesn't come through, he didn't promise any of your wishes. It's not every want that you have that Jesus is yes in, 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 to you. It's all the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus. And what happens is our faith starts to fade, the fire starts to go out, and the whole time God's going, i got 3,573 logs chopped up waiting for you to fuel the fire. See, the promises of God are what fuel our faith. What promises are you clinging to in your circumstances? Because oftentimes we get caught up in the circumstances and we throw up this prayer. It's like a hope. God, I hope you'll magically do something. Based on what? You got the fuel, this whole book full of them. Conservative number, 3,000. I was reading an article this week about dealing with temptation based on the promises of God. I'll read you a section of it. I cut it, paste it in here. Has anxiety crawled into your minds? about life, about family, about work, about hanging out with your family during Christmas. I'm sorry, I inserted that. <clears throat> Lots of stuff happens in life. And we all get anxious, even though we know it's sin. We all do it. It says, we can remember Jesus said, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Has lust vied for our attention? We can rehearse the wonder of this reward. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's Matthew 5, 8. That's a promise. Are we tempted to withhold forgiveness from someone who has hurt us? We can call to mind this inconceivable mercy and warning. In Jesus' promise of Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. These are just a couple. I jotted down a few more after reading the article. Thinking about us, being equipped to fuel our faith. Depends on circumstances, which ones you might cling to, but if you're being tempted, which we all are tempted all the time. How about 1 Corinthians 10.13? No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. So you're not experiencing something everyone else here hasn't experienced. That Jesus himself didn't experience. But God is faithful. It doesn't say you're faithful. It says God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. That's a promise. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape. Do you see the way of escape? That you may be able to endure it. You wonder about God's provision in your life? Maybe that's some of the anxiety. How about Matthew 6.33? Seek first his kingdom. Oh, it's conditional. 
If I'm seeking first his kingdom, then all these things will be added unto you. But if I seek first his kingdom, some of these promises are conditional. Like, for instance, this one. It's a conditional promise, Romans 8, 28. It's not for everybody in all of humanity. For God works all things together for those who love him. That's part of the, that's the condition. Do you love him? That are called according to his purposes. He's working all things together for your good if you love him and you're called according to his purposes. How about this? Some of you are lonely, single, divorced, widowed, just a lot of people around, but you're not connected with anybody. How about this one during this time when we're so tempted to console ourselves with material goods? Hebrews 13, 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. We oftentimes don't even quote that part. But here's the promise. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Some of you wonder if God will take you back. James 4, 8 says this. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. How about this? Romans chapter 8. You wonder if something separated you from God. Maybe you haven't been to church in a long time. Maybe you've got sin that you don't want anybody to know about. Maybe it was a divorce. Maybe it was a scandal, like a legitimate scandal that happened in your workplace. You were guilty. Listen to this. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else, and all anything else. Could you think of other things? This promise covers them all. Anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus, our Lord. Some of you are going to get exhausted because you're so busy this Christmas. How about Matthew chapter 11? Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. See, there's pro- you name a circumstance. There's 3,573 conservative estimate of these things to fuel your faith, to fight temptation, to take the next steps. You don't need to speak stuff into existence and to make stuff up. You got this book the wonder of his promises because and here's our fifth truth fourth truth I'm sorry they're personal these are personal promises you say but you said that the Bible's not about me yeah but it is to you and so just think for a second we've talked about the promise that Abraham had and it's a huge promise isn't it like he doesn't even see it all fulfilled read Hebrews chapter 11 he doesn't see it fulfilled in his lifetime let me give you land seed blessing so this is a throughout time promise. I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse those who curse you. I'm going to make a nation out of you. You're going to have more descendants than the stars in the sky than the sand on the seashore. That's so huge. The guy doesn't even have a kid. And isn't that why it's so personal? You ever struggle with infertility? Know somebody that did? It doesn't get much more personal than that. Here's a guy who's given up on that hope. And God says to him, not just a huge grand promise to the nations, because here's the reality. When we read the Bible, we're so individualistic, we need to hear this. God's gathering a people to himself, not just individual people, a whole people group of followers of his. He's creating a nation. He's going to impact the world, for God so loved the world. But it's also incredibly personal. And you see that even in Abraham's promise. It's for the, I'm going to create a nation out of you. Be, this isn't going to be fulfilled for thousands of years. It's also incredibly personal. Speaking into his infertility, a guy who can't have a kid in a time when passing on your name was the biggest thing you could do. This is so personal. It's like in our family, we've got kind of a big family. I know some of you have bigger families. We've got four daughters, and they'll ask me sometimes questions. We're riding in the car all together, is usually when the weird questions happen. 
and uh, you've probably been asked this before as a parent, if you're a parent, do you love us all the same? Been asked that in front of all of them before. You know what I say? No. Some of you are like, I knew you weren't that good at this dad thing. I've heard your other stories, but that one, buddy, that was a bad idea. Here's what they're asking. They're asking the question, like quantifiably, like on a scale of one to 100, or some of us a 75 and some of us a 90. I know we're not perfect, so where are we at on this scale? And what I do is I answer them qualitatively. I could just say to them, I love all of you. You're all my daughters. Nothing's going to change that. Nothing could change that. It's a true thing. It's also true that God so loved the world. But some of you hear that and it goes right over your head. And so what I do with my kids is I'll look them in the eye. I remember the first time this happened, I did with all four of them in the car. I said, Ella, let me tell you what I love about you. Janie, let me tell you what I love about you. Ava, let me tell you what I love about you. Gracie, and Gracie's little, sometimes I'll get down on my knees and I'll grab her face. I'll say, let me tell you something I love about you. I don't love you all the same because you're not all the same. I do love you all, but it's also personal. And here's the thing with God's promises. That's what they're like. So we read you that promise. Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. If you confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's a promise to all people, regardless of their sin history, regardless of their nationality, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of your money, your education, all people. Anybody who will claim that, anybody who will believe the promise will be saved. But ask anybody who's believed that promise and they'll tell you how personal it is. Because you were going along, maybe you were five, maybe you were 50, and you thought you were pretty awesome. And then you realize, I can't defeat death. But Jesus has. I'm guilty of breaking the law. And either I can pay the penalty and spend eternity separated from God, or I can let the substitute, his son, the scandalous promise, take the penalty for me. And it becomes incredibly personal. Romans chapter 8, God works all things together for those who love God. It's a pretty general promise. All things for everybody who loves them. But talk to somebody whose baby died. It becomes incredibly personal. Come to me all who are weary and burdened. Kind of general when you're floating around on life and everything's going well. But when you're exhausted and you realize the only way your soul's going to be refreshed is by coming to Jesus Christ, the living water, the fountain of life, the bread of life, the only one that will satisfy you. Becomes incredibly personal. See, God's promises, it's like they're out there, they're for everybody, but he gets down on his knee and he grabs you by the face and says, this one's for you, and this one's for you, and this one's for you. They're incredibly personal. So the Bible's not about you, but it is to you. These promises are worth waiting for. They are scandalous. They are fuel for your faith. They are personal. And the fifth, fifth wonder-filled truth is simply the verse. They're all yes in Jesus. Let me read you the verse again. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. It says, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. And then we'll look at the second part in just a second. But it says this, That is why it is through Him, Jesus, that we utter our amen to God for His glory. Now you come, you know, come to this box. And you think about the wonder, like a kid on Christmas. And what could be in there for hours of joy. And maybe it's new golf clubs. Maybe it's the Barbie set. Maybe it's the Lexus, the December to remember. Maybe it's the shotgun. He's dangerous, but we can give him a gift. Maybe it's Barbie. I don't know, but it doesn't matter. All those things lose their glory. And Jesus doesn't. 
And God says yes to all the, not all your sinful desires, all the promises of God are yes to you through Jesus. But what does the second half of the verse say? And that is why, because of how wondrous Jesus is, because all 3,573 or 5,000 or 7,000 promises in the Bible are yes through Jesus, that is why it is through him that we utter our amen. Do you know what amen means? Amen doesn't just mean preach longer. I know what you're doing with that amen. I got gotcha. you. Amen doesn't just like end a prayer. Like, okay, everybody can go now. Amen means yes. It's an affirmation. That's true. Yes. Yes. So let me read you the verse without saying the word amen, but saying yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. In other words, God says yes to you through Jesus Christ. That is why it is through him that we say yes to God for his glory. So God has said yes to you through Jesus Christ. Maybe there's some stuff in the Christmas story you've missed. What is it that he wants you to say yes to him about this Christmas? For some of you, it's salvation. Some of you have not believed that promise in Romans chapter 10. That if you confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you will be saved. Because here's what the Bible says also, the wages of sin, and we're all guilty, you all acknowledge you're liars. And one guy made himself guilty, so we're all in. The wages of sin is death. But just like Genesis chapter 3, amidst death, there's hope. The gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. And if you say yes to Jesus in salvation, you'll be given eternal life. You'll be saved from death, saved from sin, saved from Satan, saved from yourself, saved from the wrath of God. But you've got to say yes. And I'll give you an opportunity to do that in just a minute. Some of you here, you're believers in Jesus but you've been trying to do this thing on your own, the promises of God are fuel for your faith. What promises will you say yes to this Christmas? Some of you here today didn't realize that you used the promises in such a personal way in your exact circumstances, and God's been calling you to do something, and you need to step out and say yes to him today. Will you say yes to Jesus? He said yes to you.